what one word or what one sentence would encapsulate the teachings. Have you ever stopped to answer that question for yourself? Sort of the question of the sentence that would frame, form the framework for everything else. Um, if you look at a lot of modern books on Buddhism, sort of the quintessential teaching seems to hover around the issues of non-reactivity, equanimity, acceptance, being open to the present moment. I've been doing a little survey, and, and I've noted the number of times when people say the whole point of the Buddhist teachings is to be open to the present moment. However, when the Buddha was about to die, his last sentence, which you can take as his you know, final message on the teaching, um, was literally to, to achieve completion through heedfulness. Um, the word he uses for heedfulness, apamata, sometimes is translated as diligence. You may have read it in the T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, you know, work out your salvation through diligence. Um, but diligence simply means being, you know, being you know, sincerely dedicated to the practice. And the Buddha seems to be saying more than this. In fact, we'll go in a little bit later in how he actually defines the term. Um, for the time being, I will use the word heedfulness, because he defines it as guarding the mind in the midst of defilements, guarding the mind in the midst of dangerous mental qualities. So it's not just an issue of being diligent, but it's also having a sense of what's important in your mind, what's precious, what's worthy of protection, as opposed to the fact that there are dangers out there. Um, and if you think about it, these are two radically different approaches to the Dharma. If you take, I'll say, radical acceptance or equanimity as the, the teaching that forms the context, then it's basically saying that in the present moment there really are no dangers. It's a good place to open up. You should be more trusting in the present moment. Um, even if there are dangers, they're not really serious. You should be able to learn how to withstand them. Or if they are serious, there's really nothing you can do about them. You have to accept them simply as the fact of the way the life, the way, this is the way life is. You know, your desires are not going to be met. There's going to be aging, illness, and death, and you better learn to take it. That's, um, <laughs> that's what it comes down to. Um, this is not the Buddhist message. You know. um, he, he was saying, one, and, and you look at the implications of the word heedfulness, one, there really are dangers there in life. You don't have to look very far around you. There's um, politicians. Um, <laughs> there's aging, illness, and death all around you. In the past year, I've had a number of deaths, both in my family and in people very close to me. I lost a student in a tsunami last month. And um, you can see, no matter how you die, my father died last last May after a very long illness. And you see someone going through the process of illness as you know your your body processes leave you one by one by one, and you're more subject to the indignities of old age, having to depend on people who may be happy to help you and who may not be happy to help you, or may vary from day to day. And it's a miserable way to end your life. We like to think of life kind of being rounded out by a nice end, um, and it very rarely happens that way. Things just kind of peter out um, in a lot of suffering. Or in the case of the student who died, the tsunami, it was very sudden. The mother was there, and um, she thought she saw her son running ahead of her away from the wave, and the next thing she knew, he was gone. And the body was found the next day, and she's still you know, in severe you know, suffering over this, because he'd, uh, he'd been autistic and had taken an awful lot of the energy of her life just keeping him going. And so whether you die suddenly or die slowly, it's miserable, and there's just a lot of needless, pointless suffering that goes on in life. Um, so you know, there really are dangers out there. And secondly, they do matter. 
But the Buddha says there is something you can do about them. And you think about the idea of heedfulness. If there were nothing you could do about dangers, then there would be no need to say to recommend that people be heedful. And you couldn't do anything about them. You just might as, might as well learn how to accept them. But what he is saying is that there is something you can do. You can protect yourself. There are valuable things in your life, and you have the capability to protect them. This is what the teaching on karma is all about. That you have this ability within you to recognize what's dangerous and what's not dangerous, what's precious and worthy of um, maintaining, and you can make a difference in your actions. Now, I know a lot of people who dislike the the theory of karma or the teaching on karma. In fact, it was right here in CIMC a couple years years ago when someone in the audience said that, as far as she was concerned, the teaching on karma was dead on arrival. Um, and it depends on how you interpret what the purpose of that teaching is. Um, Many of us see it as kind of a teaching on fate, a way of blaming people's current sufferings on past bad actions. The idea being that because they did something bad in the past, they deserve to suffer now. And I've never seen the Buddha use the teaching in that way. If someone is suffering now, okay, they may have done something wrong in the past, but how do you know that you haven't done something wrong in the past? If you were in that person's position, what kind of help would you like? You now have the opportunity to give that help. The teaching is not so much focused on explaining the present in terms of the past, but learning from the past so that you can shape the present and you can shape the future. So it's a teaching not so much of the inevitability of fate or the inevitability of suffering, but it's a teaching of empowerment in your own choices, in what you do and what you say and what you think. You can really make a difference in your life and the life of the people around you. And this is borne out in the way the Buddha teaches about heedfulness. If you can compare the teaching on sort of radical acceptance and equanimity and the teaching on heedfulness and how they would apply to um, going into the forest, radical acceptance is the kind of teaching that you would get of somebody on LSD and marijuana going to the forest and just blissing out on how beautiful it is out there. No matter what, you see a tiger killing something and it's gorgeous when you're in that state of mind. Um, as opposed to the teaching on heedfulness, when you go into the forest you realize, okay, there are dangers there, but there are things you can do about them. You can learn how to train yourself to be alert to the dangers and also to learn how to avoid them, protect what's valuable. I don't know how many of you have been to Alaska, but um, you go to the wilderness there and you get a very strong sense it's an immense wilderness. There's the National Park, Denali National Park, and it's bigger than Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island combined. And most of it is between two mountain ranges, and you get a position, you get in positions in the park and you can see, you know. Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, all combined in this one huge area. And you get a strong sense that the wilderness would not care if you died. Not be out there. You could die a pleasant death, you could die an unpleasant death. It's entirely up to you to survive. There's nothing innately nice about nature that wants you to survive. And and in the same way, in your own mind, there's nothing inherent in your mind that can guarantee that you're going to see yourself through different situations. So you have to look at your mind the same way that you would look at a wilderness. You have to take care of it. And this gets to the specifically Buddhist teaching on heedfulness, which is the Buddhist definition is guarding your mind in the midst of what he calls mental effluence or mental fermentations, defiling um, events in the mind. Um, There are fermentations, there's a list of four. One is sensual passion, the second is states of becoming, the third is views, and the fourth is ignorance. I'll go down these four. Central passion is danger, and of course, that you get attracted to things that are not necessarily good for you. And the passion itself, you know, blinds your vision, it blinds your judgment powers of judgment. Um, 
And it leads you to do all sorts of things, as the Buddha said. This is why we have fights in families. This is why we have wars. I mean, there's a sensual desire for things, for particular experiences. States of becoming. This refers to the mind's ability to create worlds of its own. You close your eyes and you think about, say, uh, California. Okay, there's, that's this world that suddenly appears in your mind, and you can create it in a lot of detail. The mind does this every day when you go to sleep. If you've ever really looked carefully at the process of going to sleep, you're in this time frame and space frame, and all of a sudden you find this alternative world appearing in your mind. That's your first dream. You go into that. That's called The appearance of this world is called becoming. You're entering into it as birth, and then you're asleep. And the Buddha said, this is not only a process that happens when you fall asleep, you go through it in the course of a day many times. When you die, he says, you're going to follow the same process. I had an experience several years back when I was in Thailand. I was bitten by a dog one day on my arms round. Um, all my protective chants didn't work that day. Yeah. <laughs> and the dog had it in for me, I must admit. I'd, it had come into the monastery many times, and I chased it away, and all of a sudden it found me on its territory. And <laughs> <laughs> And so I, fortunately that day someone came from the town, and so they took me into the hospital and I got a tetanus shot. And the next morning I was out doing, on, on my alms round, and I happened to get back to the same house where I'd been bitten the day before, and as the wife of the house was putting food in my bowl, I fainted. Um, and just as I was fainting, this picture of America flashed in my mind. And next thing I knew, I was waking up in the middle of all the chicken shit and everything, on the, and my food was spilled all over the place, my bowl was squashed out of shape, and the, the son and the family sort of scooped me up in his arms, put me in a truck, and took me back to the monastery and dropped me off. I mentioned this later to my teacher, and he said, you know, if you had died at that point, you would have been reborn in America, um, because that was what had flashed into my mind at that time. And when you leave the body, you just go with whatever flashes in your mind. So you've got to be careful about, <laughs> about the kind of things you like to think about and imagine, you know? <laughs> They form ruts in your mind. So that's something you have to watch out for. Views. Your views about reality. Um, if, you, if you think that there is a permanent self, or you think that there is no self, or the nature of the world, the nature of politics, anything, these can influence you know, where your mind goes. And you can end up doing and saying and thinking a lot of things that are going to be detrimental to yourself and to other people. And then finally, ignorance, you know, that whatever clouds your awareness of what you're doing. The Buddha doesn't talk about general ignorance. It doesn't matter that you don't know, you know what's out there in Alpha Centauri, but it does matter that you know okay, whether you're creating suffering or not. If you miss that, okay, you're really missing something that's important, and this is what he wants you to keep in touch with. If you miss, if you fall for any of these things, you really are creating dangers for your mind, you're creating dangers for the people around you. So you have to be careful. And the Buddha's instructions on how to be careful <clears throat> are really important instructions in meditation. Um, essentially what comes down to this is this. One, you have to be really sensitive to what there is there in the mind. What's coming on? What's, what's arising? What's passing away? And then secondly, however, it's not just a matter of watching these things. You have to learn how to guard against unskillful mental states and then encourage the skillful ones. In the course of watching the mind, this is where the teachings on acceptance and equanimity and non-reactivity are important, because so many of us don't like to admit what's in our minds, um, for one reason or another. Um, part of this may happen to do with the fact 
it may have to do with the fact that we were born in a guilt culture. Did you ever read Ruth Benedict's analysis of guilt cultures and shame cultures? It was her analysis during uh, World War II. Back then, when it looked like America was going to win the war, the American army, which in those days was seemed to be a little bit more intelligent than they are now, they hired Ruth Benedict to figure out, if, okay, if we, if we occupy Japan, what's going to happen? Will the Japanese cooperate with the occupation, or are they going to be um, rebellious? And so she did a study of Japanese culture, and the thesis she arrived at was that one of the main differences between our culture and theirs is that their culture is based on shame, ours is based on guilt. And in a shame culture, the basic difference comes down to how parents train their children. In a shame culture, the, the parents will say, don't do that, it embarrasses us in front of the neighbors. Um, in a guilt culture, they will say, don't do that, it hurts me when you do that. Um, someone mentioned that you know, shame cultures tend, if people get you know, mentally unbalanced in these two cultures, shame cultures tend to produce psychosis, Guilt cultures tend to produce neuroses. You know the difference between the two. Psychosis, and you think 2 plus 2 equals 5. Neurosis, you know that 2 plus 2 equals 4, but you hate them for it. <laughs> so. But it tends, to, it tends to happen that in guilt cultures, people get a lot more embarrassed, or you get feeling really guilty about what's in their mind, so they try to deny it to themselves. In a shame culture, it doesn't matter what you're thinking as long as nobody else knows. But in a guilt culture, you know that even if you think bad thoughts, it can you know it can hurt your parents or hurt your other pe- other people around you. And so this is one of the reasons why it's so important, especially in our culture, that we develop these qualities of acceptance and equanimity as we watch our minds, so we can learn to admit. Well, yes, there is greed. Yes, there is delusion. Yes, there is fear. Yes, there are all those nasty little qualities that we don't like. They do come, but they also go. And when they go, they're replaced by other more positive qualities. This is where the quality of honesty is also important here. But you don't just stop by watching things come and go, because you miss out on an awful lot of important things. And particularly, you miss out on one of the Buddhist's most important teachings. You've all probably been exposed to the Four Noble Truths. Do you know the duties with regard to each truth? Because the Buddha's first teaching on the Four Noble Truths didn't just stop with saying, okay, there's suffering and then there's a cause of suffering. There's a cessation and there's the path to the cessation. He says there's a duty appropriate to each. With regard to suffering, he says you have to comprehend it, which means learning to watch it. Now, be able to be able to watch it, that requires powers, powers of mindfulness, equanimity, concentration, so that on the one hand you can actually see what's arising and yet not feel threatened by it. If the suffering overwhelms you, you, you feel threatened, then you just try to push it away, push it away. And in pushing away, you don't see anything. But, but learning to watch it from a position where you don't feel threatened by it, and this is why we practice concentration. So we have that standpoint from which we can watch things and not feel threatened. You see how it comes and you see how it goes. This is important. But the Buddha, when he basically condensed or tried to summarize his awakening, he summarized it in terms of causality. You know, things come in terms of causes, either at the, the moment that the cause arises or later, further on in time. You comprehend suffering. When you see the cause, then you abandon that. You see whatever comes along with it that's causing that unnecessary suffering, and you let it go. In terms of the cessation of suffering, you try to be aware of it. You try to be alert to it. Realize that it actually happens, that suffering does end at particular points. 
Suffering is not one big thing that just kind of comes and occupies your mind. It's a mental event that comes and goes. And you have to learn to watch it when it goes. Okay, what happened when it went? You want to see that clearly. Because so often, say, say, you know, suffering comes with craving. One craving comes, and the next thing we do, when that craving goes, what do we do? We latch on to another craving, and then another, and another. We never see any gap between them. But we have to learn how to look for that gap. In order to do that, you have to develop the path, which is qualities of virtue, concentration, and discernment, as the Buddha lays them out in eight factors. Now, this issue of developing the path is extremely important. Just last week I was teaching a group in Santa Fe, and there was one man who spoke up. We talked about the issues of why it is in certain meditation circles that strong states of concentration are a bad thing. You know, you're discouraged from getting into good, deep concentration. And everyone is told, well, it's dangerous and you're going to get stuck. And um, As my teacher once said, look, getting stuck in good states of concentration is not a bad place to be stuck. You know? He once had some people visiting him. They had been Abhidhamma students, and they had heard that he taught the Dharma, and they wanted to find out what kind of Dharma he taught. So they went to visit, and he said, well, I teach breath meditation. He had them, was going to have them sit down and meditate, close their eyes. and said, oh, no, we can't do that. We're afraid of getting stuck in jhana. And if we get stuck in jhana, we'll be, <laughs> we'll be reborn in the Brahma worlds. And he said, look, being reborn in a Brahma world is a lot better than being reborn as a dog. So, so that's not a bad place to be. But what happens in, in that state, in this particular, when I was mentioning this, one of the people at that retreat commented, he said, well, you know, I was getting in states like that, and my teacher taught me that it was important to learn how to let go. And so these nice states of concentration would come, and you just kind of trash them. This is not in accord with the Buddha's teachings. He said, you get a good state of concentration in mind, you try to develop it. This is part of the path. Because when you develop it, it becomes, it becomes your friend, it becomes your ally. Um, the trick, particularly in learning how to distinguish what should be let go and what should be um, developed, also is, lies in knowing how to let go and how to develop. Um, in letting go of unskillful qualities, it's important that you not just kind of you know, deny them or that you just try to push them away. You understand what, what feeds them, what feeds these unskillful qualities, and then you learn how to starve them, and then they naturally just kind of wither away. The Buddha, when he talks about this, um, and the suttas, talks about starving the hindrances. If you've been doing meditation, you know the hindrances. Um, sensual desire, again, um, ill will, tor torpor and lethargy, restlessness and anxiety and uncertainty. And you learn how to recognize these things when they come. Um, but you also learn how to starve them. In other words, when sensual desire comes, you learn to look at the negative side of whatever it is you have a desire for. This is called appropriate attention. When ill will comes, and ill will is not anger, it's really wishing somebody, you want to see somebody suffer. It would be really good to see that person miserable. That's what they mean by ill will. And you look at, if you look at the quality of ill will, you ask yourself, well, what, what would I get out of seeing somebody else suffer? What do I gain? There's really nothing there that I would gain at all. Aside from some miserable satisfaction, um, torpor and lethargy, you try to focus on things that will wake you up, that will give you some interest. If you're getting bored with your meditation object, change the object. You know? Explore it. If you're getting bored with your breath, you can try breathing in the back of your neck, breathing through your knees, breathing through your feet. Give yourself something to do. Restless and anxiety comes from... Um, not having a comfortable place for the mind to settle down, you try to create a sense of ease. 
someplace in the body where you can settle down and feel comfortable. As for uncertainty, this basically comes, up being, comes down to being uncertain as to what's skillful and what's not. And you can just reflect in your own experience. Okay, what have I done in the past that's actually led to good results? What have I done that's not? And that can help obliterate some of your uncertainty. Another way of getting rid of uncertainty is to ask yourself, okay, what do I really know right now? Well, I know the breath is coming in, I know the breath is coming out, let's focus there. And if you focus on things in, in this way, instead of getting wound up and thinking that you know, this, whatever I'm desiring really is desirable, or the person for whom I feel ill will really is a real bastard, um, you learn to look in a different way. And in that way you um, starve the quality rather than denying it. You're, you have to be honest with yourself. And the Buddha once said, his one prerequisite for accepting a student was that the student be honest, both towards the Buddha and be honest with yourself. And that way you can learn the Dharma as you see precisely what's happening in the mind. Be honest with that the quality does exist there, but there's something you can do about it. You're not, you don't have to be afraid of it. You don't have to you know, pretend that it's not there. You can be honest with yourself because you have tools for dealing with these things. On the other side, the Buddha said, there are positive qualities that you want to encourage. His standard list is what they call the seven factors of awakening. There's mindfulness, the analysis of mental qualities. That means precisely this process of seeing what's skillful and what's unskillful in the mind. Persistence in trying to undercut what's unskillful and encourage what's skillful. Rapture, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. These are good qualities that you want to develop. And in these cases as well, you have to feed them and you have to protect them. The Buddha's main method of protection, he said, is learning how to guard your sense doors. In other words, watch, you know, being very careful about how you look at things, how you listen, how you smell things, how you taste things, how you touch things, how you think about things. Now the Buddha, in teaching restraint of the senses, is not saying that you have to go around with blinders on. It's not a case that you, you know, shouldn't look at this or shouldn't listen to that. He says, look at how you look. Look at how you listen. Um, one really good way of experimenting with how you look, and this is, you might want to try it tomorrow as you go through the streets of Cambridge. We found in the monastery that it's, you know, one of the advantages of being a monk is you can do these kind of perception experiments in your social encounters because there are so few. <laughs> Occasionally, like when I fly back to San Diego, one of the monks will come along with the driver to pick me up. And he was commenting one time, <clears throat> and how he began to realize that when he went into crowds of people, he was always looking for the beautiful women. And so you, you sort of sort out, sort out who's beautiful, who's not, and you look at the, 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 the beautiful people around here. And he tried one day, well, let's sort it out another way. I said, let's look for the old people, signs of aging. And he said he hadn't realized that they were everywhere. <laughs> it's simply a matter of what you're looking for. You know? They're there. You know? um, and you can, you can do this in any way that you want. Try a perception, ex- perception experiment. See if you can like, look for the signs of aging, look for the signs of illness. Um, look for the signs of stressed out people, and you start seeing them all over the place, where you may have missed them before because you were looking for the good-looking people, the attractive people. And you begin to realize that your sensory input is not purely a passive process. You're implicated. There's an element of intention. You're looking for certain things. You're listening for certain things. Um, And when you see this, you begin to realize, you know, there's a skillful way and there's an unskillful way of looking. It doesn't have to wait until you get that into your mind and then you process it. 
It's how you're filtering the data as it comes in. And you can learn to train yourself in this way so as to guard your mind. Because what you're trying to guard is these friendly qualities. As I said earlier, you want a good state of concentration where you feel at ease, sort of your own little center. In, in Thailand, we used to talk about having your own little portable air-conditioned room, which may not work in, in Boston right now. But um, think of having your own little heated room inside. And you can carry that around with you. This is one of the skills of concentration practice that you want to develop. So when, you know, when states of concentration arise, you want to learn how to nurture them and, and help protect them. Because just like un unskillful states, you have to understand the process of cause and effect and how these things come and go. Um, trying to grab hold of a skillful state of mind is like trying to grab hold of a hologram. You, know, you see this picture floating in the air and you try to put your hand in and it's just not there. There was a woman who came to study with my teacher one time in Thailand and she was meditating up in the we had a sort of a meditation hall at the top of the hill. And one afternoon she was meditating and all of a sudden she grabbed fell over. Excuse me. This is gonna sound horrible on the tape. Um, and she was awfully chagrined. And she finally admitted after first not wanting to talk about it. She said, well, she was meditating and she saw this beautiful golden tray coming to float in front of her. <laughs> and she had tried to grab it before it went away. Well, it wasn't, it. it wasn't there. And this is many times, you've probably noticed this in your own meditation, a good meditation state comes and you grab at it like the golden tray and it just slips through your fingers. You can't grab at these things. If you think about the hologram, you have to protect the machine that creates the hologram rather than grabbing at the picture itself. So you, you begin to notice, okay, what kind of breath state of breathing helps encourage these states of mind. What attitudes create, help encourage this state of mind? Observe how you focus, where you focus, and then keep those things in mind as ways of protecting these constructive states of mind, these valuable states of mind. And in this way, you know, this, this is what heedfulness is all about, is guarding these states of mind in the midst of the fact that there may be other states of mind sort of floating around. Because one of the most important things you realize as you get to look at your mind is that it's not just one state coming in at any one time. There are lots of potential states that you could encourage. It's like you've got a committee up there, and you know what committees are like. There's, you know, there's politicking and there's sort of agreements behind the scene. Um, but you also realize that just because something is brought to the floor of the committee doesn't mean that you're responsible for it. You still have the choice. So there are these many voices proposing all kinds of things in the committee, but it's up to you to decide, okay, whose proposal do we want to follow through with? Once we decide whose proposal we want to follow through with, can we talk everybody else in the committee to going along? So there's a whole set of factors that you need to protect in order to understand the mind. And in this way, as you protect these qualities in the mind, then you find that, okay, when, say, is acceptance appropriate and when is it not appropriate? When is equanimity appropriate and when is it not? Now, these, are, these, are, these are teachings that don't form the context of the Buddhist message, but they are skillful qualities. They're tools that you can use when you need them and they can be put aside at, at other points. But underlying all this is the, this um, sense that you have to be heedful of what's going on. Because there are dangers in the mind. You get, off, you get the mind off on strange tangents and you don't know where you're going to end up. Or if you could develop the useful qualities in the mind. And these qualities do become your friends. They're something you can rely on more and more. There's this greater sense of solidity, a greater sense of being grounded and centered in your life as you allow these qualities to develop and nurture them and protect them. When you look at the Buddha's life, you realize he wasn't, he wasn't a very accepting person. You know? 
the very beginning. There's a new issue of Tricycle out. I don't know if you've seen it yet, but it's got a really nice passage that was written in the early 20th century on, on a biography of the Buddha, which shows how he was really defiant. He said, there must be something better than the way we normally live every day. And his friends were coming to say, well, this is as good as it gets. You might as well enjoy it. You know, sensual pleasures are a good thing. Even though they have their limitations, you know, you're a coward if you don't go after them. Because this is the best thing life has to offer. And he said, there must be something better. There are dangers in all these things. And he said, there must be something that's really safe. And it was through the process of discovering what was skillful in the mind, what was not, learning how to guard the mind against what is unskillful and protect what is skillful, he was able to separate out in the mind, okay, what is it that dies and what is it that doesn't? And once he had found that what, what doesn't die in there, okay, then he was safe. Skillful, you know, this heedfulness is part of the path. Once you've arrived at the goal, you don't really need that heedfulness anymore because you've gotten something that really doesn't require protection. But as long as you haven't gotten there, you want to protect the good things that you've got. Have a strong sense of that your most valuable possessions are just this, you know, the good qualities you have in your mind. Um, you look at what's, what you could create in life otherwise, and it can be getting it can be fairly depressing. Several years back, before my father died, I remember one day we, he was he was living in Williamsburg, and when I was a teenager, we lived in Charlottesville, Virginia, and built a house outside of the town. And I was visiting one time, and we talked about how we hadn't seen the old house in a long time. Wanted to check it out and see how it was going. So we drove over, and it got there, and it turned out that the, the people who were living there now were not taking care of it at all. And when I say we built the house, you know, it was a lot of my father's handiwork went into the house. And so as we were driving back home, he started thinking about things, and he finally said, you know, I don't have anything to show for my life. And he went down his career as a farmer. You know, The government had paid him not to sell his potatoes, so he had to throw his potatoes away. When he sold the farm, got a government job, he ended up working on the Water Resources Council, which you know, was a fairly successful position. But you know, they would make proposals to Congress. You know what happens to proposals to Congress. You know, that cartoon of committee work, you propose a horse to the committee. And this person adds this, and that person adds that, and you end up with a camel with feathers. You know? um, and, and thinking about that made me realize that you know, if you look at your accomplishment in life in terms of what you create out there, there's always the possibility that you know, there's so many conditions out there that you have no control over. Um, if you have a look at your accomplishment in terms of the good qualities you've developed in your mind, that's something nobody can take away. And so this is something you want to protect. You can't be equanimous and accepting about just everything that comes up. As I said earlier, there is a stage when you have to learn to be accepting of what's coming up in your mind. So you can begin to sort things out and see okay, who in this committee are your friends and who are the people you have to watch out for and how can you learn to use your friends and allies in order to convert the unskillful people so the whole committee can begin to work together. And this way you have allies in creating a happiness that can't be taken away. So if you look at the Buddhist teachings in, in light of, try to keep this point in mind that, okay, everything has to be seen from the point of view of heedfulness. When he's talking about equanimity, okay, where does equanimity fit into this process of protecting the mind? Where does it not fit? Where does acceptance fit? Where does that not fit? Where does concentration help? Where do you need discernment? When you think of the, this issue of heedfulness and learn to be a person who's not totally trusting but not totally negative and cynical, Realize that you have the you're in the position where you really can make a difference in in sorting out your mind and looking after it.
And that really does make a whole difference in your life. When you realize the importance of these things, then it gives you the context for the practice in which you see things in their appropriate place and can use, use these tools. You've got a whole box full of tools here in the Buddhist teachings. And it's the teaching on heedfulness that helps you sort out, okay, where you need the hammer, where you need the screwdriver. So, so those are my teaching, uh, those are my thoughts on the concept of heedfulness. I understand I have to let some of you go before we have a discussion. So I'll take a few minutes for anyone who needs to leave, and then we can talk. I get to drink. Any questions? Comments? Yes. Sometimes when I'm practicing, actually a lot of times, I feel like I need to develop qualities a lot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I think I'm getting pulled into a, uh, a greedy mindset with having to develop too much. I'm wondering, is there a time to just maintain? Okay. Um, it depends on the effects. I mean, are you getting good results from being greedy? And that, those are times when it's good to be greedy. Don't think of it as greed. Think of it as you know, you're working on something important. Think of it more as determination. Okay. Yes? Well, it's best to have some practice before you start getting the dementia. Um, this is why it's good to start meditating now. Um, um, one of my teachers in Thailand, towards the end of his life, was commenting on how he noticed that his mind was beginning to tell him weird things, sending very weird messages. But he had the mindfulness to notice that it was a strange message and not get involved. Because the, you know, sort of the perceptions that come in are many times related to the physical state of the body. And as you're getting older, there's not much you can do about that. But you can notice, okay, this is strange, I don't have to go there. Um, 
and I noticed the difference between, in his case, the difference between that and my own father had dementia as he was getting older, as approaching death, and um, he would just get sucked in because he hadn't had much training in mindfulness. So there is there is an ability there is there's kind of an observer in the mind that can take note of these things. You can't stop the weird receptions, but you can decide whether to go with them or not. And again, as you you do any kind of meditation, you begin to realize you don't have to wait for you know clinical dementia to come in. Your mind has lots of weird perceptions in the course of every day. You know? <laughs> and as you learn how not to go there, it's an important skill. So, so I think that you, you can work on that to some extent. This hand over here. Okay. <laughs> That's a common problem. <laughs> um, okay, you can eat a, eat a bunch of chocolates and be happy, and then where does it lead you? you know? And or you could develop states of concentration, and these are actually useful states. Okay, they are constructed, and eventually you're going to have to learn how to let them go. But in the meantime, they have their uses. If you're stuck on them as being an end in and of themselves, you're going to be in a problem. You're going to be in a problem. But if you realize them as a step that you have to use in order to climb up the ladder, then it's okay. The fact that they're constructed, you're going to construct a house. You know? I mean, you live in a house that's constructed. You know, today someday it's going to fall apart, right? But that doesn't keep you from using it. And so it's the same way with these states. As long as, long as the state of concentration is mindful, you're aware of what you're doing, aware of where you are. Because sometimes there are blissful states where you just kind of you know, drift out of, out of focus. But if you focus, I mean, these will have a, an important role in the practice, so you want to develop them. 
and you don't have to be worried about being attached to them because it's like climbing a ladder. If you're going to let go of a lower rung, you have to hold on to a higher rung first. And so, because if, you know, if you don't hold on to this higher rung of concentration, you're going to go straight for the chocolates. You know? <laughs> so they're, they're, they're a useful construction. In fact, the, the word they use for them, Vihara Dhamma, literally means this quality in the mind that's a home. And again, as you know, your home is constructed, this place is constructed, we know someday it's going to fall down. But in the meantime, we use it. Yes. Working with views is um, essentially comes down to the issue, okay, when is that view a useful thing and when is it not? We're not asking whether it's right or wrong. It's, it has to be useful in a particular context. Or if you find the view is eating away at you, you know, 24 hours a day, you have to learn how to put it down um, and sort of learn how to maintain a sense of stability in the midst of this. Because if you, know, you see there's something going wrong in the political situation, you want to do something about it, you need some inner strength. And if the view is eating away at your strength, okay, that's then it's an unskillful use of that view. So it comes down to a question of time and place. When is this, when and where is it important to hold to this view? And when are the times when you have to just let it go so that you can nurture your own mind? So it's not it's not he's not the Buddha is not asking you to totally abandon views or to deny that you have views, but simply realize okay, there's there's a time and a place for these things. And you can't let them consume you all the time, because otherwise then it starts eating away at the skillful qualities in your mind. And then you're not in a position to act on the views when you feel that it is appropriate. Does that help? Anything else? Yes? Again, you have to in anger. You have to dif- sort of divide out. Okay, the recognition that something's wrong and something needs to be done, as opposed to the kind of blindness that goes along with anger. And in, in Buddhism, it's the blindness that's the problem. And a lot of the problem coming from anger is that it turns up a lot of hormones in your body, which then make you feel okay. There's this anger in me that I've got to get out somehow. And then many times in, in, the, in the, the releasing of the anger, you also realize, I did something really unskillful at that point, because my, my vision was clouded. And so it's, it's important how you learn how to you know, counteract the effects of the hormones. And one is to learn how to breathe through the anger. There's going to be a tension in your body in some place. Okay, you breathe through that. Secondly, there's still going to be the heart racing and the blood pumping and everything, and you realize, okay, the hormones are there. That doesn't necessarily mean I'm still angry. 
the moment of anger released those hormones, and now the physical effect is still there. But if I can see things more clearly and don't feel that I have to get this out of my system, now I can talk about what needs to be done. And again, it's an issue of time and place. Is this the right time to say something, or would it be better to say something some other time? The right time to do, or should I wait till some other time? So it's not so much the idea that you recognize that something is wrong. That's not the unskillful part of the anger. It's the sort of the blinded, blind reaction that comes up. That's the problem. And when you can make that distinction, then, then, then you can think about what you might ordinarily call, call the skillful use of anger, which is basically a use of your intelligence. So the recognition that something is wrong requires a certain amount of intelligence. And so then you use that. Yes. Um, in the beginning of your talk, you, you contrasted two framing of mm -hmm. principles, and, mm -hmm. and I, while you were doing that, I was thinking of a third way I would look at it. Mm -hmm. I need to. Could you repeat the two framing principles that you contrasted? I can't quite get them. Okay. The, the the common one that you see a lot of times in a lot of modern Buddhist books is that you have to learn to be accepting, non-reactive, be equanimous, patient, and the assumptions there are particularly when they talk about opening to the present moment in all of its fullness. Um, um, one is that you know, there really are no dangers there in the present moment, so it's okay to open. Secondly, if there are dangers, they don't really matter. They're not really serious. And then the third is, even if they are serious, there's nothing you can do about them, so you have to learn to accept them. The other side is you know, viewing things from the point of view of heedfulness. Okay, there are dangers in the present moment, but there are also good things. And you know, the dangers are serious. And, but there is something you can do about them. Now, what's your third alternative? While, while you were saying that, I thought, if somebody asked me what was the framing principle, I would say, the Buddha saw, taught about suffering and its end, mm -hmm. that the end of suffering would be to cling to nothing. Mm -hmm. okay? But the whole emphasis on suffering and clinging is very different than the emphasis on being in the moment. Mm -hmm. To me, the, the, the being in the moment is somehow a, a, a path element. Mm -hmm. Some sort. Right. Am I right on that? Or yeah, it's it's part of the path, yes. But when you're when you're in the present moment, it's not just to sort of be appreciate the present moment or to sort of experience it fully, but to realize that you're making choices in the present moment, and some of them are going to be useful and some of them are going to be harmful. And you know, the issue of the harm, of course, is the suffering that comes from craving in your actions. So you have to to be in the present. The purpose of being in the present moment is to see what you're doing. That's shaping not only the present moment but also the future. And then the heedfulness also would be seen the, the, the idea that there are dangers in the present moment. Right. That also would seem to be, once again, something that's a path element, okay, in which our motivation is mm -hmm. the issue of suffering. Right. It would right. always all come back to suffering. Right. Mm -hmm. But I just found it interesting that when the Buddha basically said goodbye, he didn't end with the. And with suffering, he started his teaching career talking about suffering. He ended it talking about heedfulness. And the two teachings are connected. Okay. Yes. Um, I might have missed it, but you had started up talking about um, the duties of noble truths. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the first one was to be to comprehend suffering. Yeah. And the remaining ones. Okay. The, the duties for the noble truths. Um, one to comprehend suffering. To, to abandon its cause. When you see the craving that arises with the suffering, you drop that. The third is to 
realize the cessation of suffering. It's something you notice that happens when craving is abandoned. And then the fourth is to develop the factors of the path. And it's from this list that the, you know, the Buddha came up with the, the notion of the wheel of Dharma. Um, because he said, you know, there are three levels of knowledge for each truth. One is to know the truth, second is to know the duty, and then the third is to know that you've completed the duty with regard to that truth. Um, and in ancient India, when they talked about different sets of variables being played off each other, this would be in legal texts or in philosophical texts, they would just go down and list all the variables and all their permutations. And that was called a wheel. So if you look at the teaching in his, in his very first sermon, he talks about the Four Noble Truths, the three levels of knowledge with regard to each, in you know, one by one by one by one. That's the wheel of Dharma. So that's why we have, I think there's a wheel up here, isn't there? There was, there used to be a wheel here. Right behind me? Okay. Yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> behind my head. Right, I can't see it yet. Yes. Well, again, it's it's watching your state of mind as you're enjoying these things. If, you know, if you're if you're having a large ice cream sundae and you say, "I'd like to have another one," um, or wouldn't it be neat if I had these every day all the time? Okay, th- then then you've sort of crossed the line. <laughs> and you know, there there's a, there's a different standard for lay people than there is for monks. I mean, the monks do have to be careful about these things. In fact, that's one of, the, one of the dangers they say. You know, you're invited to somebody's house, they feed you a really nice meal, and if you start thinking, wouldn't it be nice if I had this nice meal again tomorrow? You've, you've crossed the line as a monk. Um, as a layperson, you have to ask yourself, okay, is there anything unskillful coming up? Am, am I in nourishing unskillful states of mind by indulging in these things? If I am, okay, then the indulgence is unskillful. And different people will find that different indulgences will bring up unskillful states, and other people will find that they don't. So again, it, it requires you to focus on your mind. I'm not saying that the, you know the pleasure is bad. The Buddha never says these pleasures are bad. You know, just the, you know having nice 
things to touch and nice things to eat and nice things to look at. Those aren't the problem. The problem is, okay, how much am I attached am I to this? Is it, do I, am I developing the attitude that my happiness depends on these things? If it is, you're putting yourself in a dangerous situation because these things are going to change. Keep on going. Yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> then, then you're relatively safe. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the real issues are the, the, the central pleasures that require you to kill and lie and steal and cheat. You know, to get them and to maintain them. That's when you're really in danger. And you start looking at a lot of a lot of sensual pleasures, and they really do. Imp- involve a lot of that. Mm-hmm. So that's where you have to draw the line. Anything else? Yes? Well, yeah, it's like mindfulness while you're robbing a bank. Um, you know. <laughs> what, you, what you want to do is learn how to replace the pleasure that that chocolate has, you know, with the pleasure that can come from meditation. If you get the mind in good, solid states, and then you look at that chocolate and say, "I, I know what's, you know, where that's going to take me," and that now I don't need to go there because I have an alternative. I mean, the, the Buddha never forces you to give things up without having some sort of a trade-off. And so this is why you know we practice learning just how to be with the breath, be comfortable with the breath. It feels really gratifying to breathe. Just simply to breathe. It doesn't cost anybody any money. It's not causing any, you know, it's not destroying the environment. But it's a happiness that's you know stable and safe. And then you begin to look at your other compulsions, and and you find them less compelling. You know? Well, sometimes the slow processes, you know, the ones that last, you know. So give it a try. Yes. Could you repeat again what you said about anger? Because this business of abandoning the unskillful states, I mean, mm-hmm. you could apply to anger or sensual enjoyments mm-hmm. or various mm-hmm. things, but that begins with a thought, and now you have a physiological reaction to right. the body, mm-hmm. and you see that, and you make your attempt to abandon the unskillful state, you, yeah. you still have this physiological 
Okay, part of the problem is that as long as the physiological reaction is going on, we think we're still angry. Learn to reread those signals. One is that you know there's the tightness that make the tightness in the breath that makes it really unpleasant, and that's something you can control. You can you know monitor your breathing and breathe in a much more calm way. But then you find that okay, there's still the physiological reaction. Your your palms are sweating and your your heart's beating, and 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 just notice that, and the mind will say, okay, gee, I must be still be angry because there's still the, there's still this reaction. But remind yourself, hey, wait a minute, the hormones are in the blood, and it's going to take a little while for them to get out. So it doesn't necessarily mean you're still angry. Just focus on the feeling, and not necessarily interpret the mind to identify that. As, as a sign that you're still angry. Okay. And then whatever, I mean, it's, and it's usually not so much the heartbeat that's the, the part that needs to get out of your system, but it's that sense of tension that develops up. Mm-hmm. That you can breathe through. I don't know if here they've been including the instructions that there's a there's a way of looking at breath and meditation in that sort of the energy flow throughout your whole body is related to the breath, and you learn how to just kind of breathe through the tension, breathe through the tightness. You can manipulate your breath, manipulate the rhythm, manipulate your sense of okay where the breath is coming in, where it's going out. Remember, it's coming in and out your whole skin. You saw Goldfinger, right? You know why the woman died, right? Yes. Okay. Okay. She couldn't breathe through her skin, but you you can, and just think of the breath coming in and out the whole body, and that kind of helps release a lot of the tension. And, and what, not just for anger, but for any of these states. Any of these states, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that puts the mind in a much better state to look. Okay, what really should be said? What really should be done right now? Again, that's our whole purpose for being in the present moment. Okay, what am I doing right now? Question here. Yeah, mindfulness literally just means keeping something in mind. And you can be mindful of dangers, which would then be heedfulness. So heedfulness is mindfulness with regard to danger? Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Heedfulness is mindfulness with regard to dangers. Many people think mindfulness means awareness, or but it's not. There are three terms that the Buddha said apply to mindfulness practice. One is mindfulness, keeping something in mind. In the case, this case, it would be your frame of reference, the body, feelings, whatever. Secondly, is alertness, and that's watching what's actually going on. So the two separate things that should be kept together. And then the third quality is ardency, when you really give yourself totally to the practice. In other words, ardency. In other words, if you're if you're with the, the object of your of your meditation, you're trying to be as totally aware and totally sensitive sensitive to it as possible. If you notice you slipped off, you bring your mind right back. It's not that you're sitting here meditating and all of a sudden thinking about what well, I could be doing next weekend. And let's think about that for a while. We've got a whole hour here to meditate. We might as well, you know, take advantage of it. <laughs> That's not being ardent. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you notice you slipped off. You come right back. And the three of those qualities together, that's, that's mindfulness practice. Mindfulness itself, which is the ability to keep something in mind. You just remind yourself, if it's, say it's the breath, just breath, 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 breath. Yes? 
Mm-hmm. So what is it I'm keeping in mind as I'm practicing mindfulness? Like say I'm making breakfast or I, I get out of my car and I'm walking to the store. You know, is it my mind, my thoughts, is it my... You have the choice. Um, and this is why there are four frames of reference that you can choose from. One is the body, which could be the breath, the movement of the body, the posture of the body. And you just let everything else go. Or if you notice other things, you notice them in relationship, say, to your breath. When a thought comes, how does it affect your breath? When you move in a certain way, how does it affect the breath? Try to relate everything to that one frame of reference. And then there's a practical aspect. You're, you're moving through the world, mm-hmm. like I'm driving. Mm-hmm. So am I paying attention to driving and just saying, let's stay focused and really be aware that I'm driving? That's fine. Or, or can I then... Sometimes you can actually like go to the breath that you're driving, right. even mm-hmm. though you're driving. Even though you're driving, you can still be with the breath. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then um, the hardest time I find being mindful, I can do it in the morning, I can do it on the way to work, and then once I get to work and I start talking to people, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. the phone rings and, uh-huh. and you know, the pager goes off and all that stuff's happening, and I'm multitasking, and then it's like I get home and I say, oh, I didn't do it again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd say just try to stay with your sense of the breath in the midst of all that. As, as kind of your, your standing ground. And I personally, I mean, I don't multitask that much. Oh, that's one of the nice things about being a monk. <laughs> so for us, those of us have no choice, yeah, yeah. we do have to multitask. Yeah. But I, I, found, I found it's a lot more effective. When you're with the breath, you, set, you have the ability to access a lot of parts of your mind that you wouldn't be able to access otherwise. No, 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 no. Right. Concentration is full body awareness. Right. Yeah. So, so that um, there's a sense of a little bit of a split then, right? I'm, mm. I'm, I'm with my breath, but I'm listening to someone as they speak mm-hmm. to me. That's okay. Mm-hmm. What I found is just keep whole body awareness. You don't have to be aware of whether the breath is coming in or out, but just notice, okay, what's the tone of this body experience right now? And try to keep it as relaxed as possible in the midst of all this can manipulate these these sensations and and that actually you know nobody has to know that you're blissing out right here while they're yelling at you <laughs> and then then you're in a position you can actually watch it go past i mean this life in the monastery is not all that much different from life in the world we may not multitask but we actually have you know difficult issues in the monastery and one of the and if the things are not difficult in the monastery, one of the teacher's duties is to make it difficult for you. <laughs> and so I had the experience in Thailand. You know, my teacher would sometimes just say nasty things when he got the opportunity, um, until I learned how to watch it go past. And the way to watch it go past is just sit fully in your body, and not put yourself up as the you know the receiver of this particular word. But think of yourself as this kind of a big screen and things can go right through. And you can maintain that for long periods of time in the midst of all this other yeah. hysteria. And then would you do the same thing with your own thoughts? If right. You start hearing those. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you kind of stay with the body, the full body. There's the thought. It's just kind of happening. Right. right. Mm-hmm. There's a question here. Um, I have, was wondering about... Um, discerning what one's actions should be. So if one is perceiving a situation as being negative, mm-hmm. um, is the origin of that feeling because of 
past conditioning and, and um, an unhealthy, unskillful aversion, or mm -hmm. is it really a bad situation that one should mm -hmm. change? Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I second guess myself, why oh, I should tolerate this situation when maybe I shouldn't, or mm -hmm. I don't tolerate it mm -hmm. when I should. Mm -hmm. That's <laughs> something you can only learn from trial and error. I found though that when, you know, if you can learn how to relax in the midst of these situations, you can begin to learn to trust your perception of them a little bit more. And if you even when you do make mistakes, you say, "Okay, one more thing to chuck up to experience," and it's the ability to to take, you know, learn from your mistakes and not really beat yourself over the head with them. It's an important part of the practice. Yes. Um, just a moment ago, you were about to go through the four frames. Great. There's body, body in and of itself, which means that you're not thinking about whether your body is good looking in other people's eyes or whether it's strong enough to do the job you've got. Uh, but just okay, the fact you've got a body, you're going to be with that fact in your experience, in and of itself. Secondly, feelings in and of themselves. And again, it's not the question of whether they're good feelings or bad feelings, but, but or what they're about. Just, okay, there is a feeling of pleasure, there is a feeling of pain. You notice them coming and going. Um, states of mind, which would be the presence or absence of passion, presence or absence of aversion, presence or absence of delusion. And then actually there's a whole long list of the, the various pairs that you can look at your mind in terms of. <clears throat> And then what they call mental qualities, and these are its kind of events that come up in the mind, like, like the five hindrances. Any one of the five hindrances may be there or may be absent. Um, any one of the seven factors of awakening may be there or may be absent. And you're look, trying to look at these things simply as events so that you can notice the cause and effect pattern. And particularly in that fourth frame of reference, you not only just watch the coming and going, but you learn how to encourage the skillful ones and discourage the unskillful ones. And sometimes you find in the course of one meditation period you're actually going to be switching frames of reference. Say a strong feeling comes up in the body. You may decide you want to go to the feeling and just watch it for a while. But you'd want to try to change your frame of reference consciously. And that way you begin to see. Well, it puts you in a good position so that you can develop equanimity towards what's coming and going. And then you can decide, okay, what to do with these things now that you've admitted their presence. Yes? Could you repeat the three levels of knowledge you mentioned when you were talking about the No, but the first one is just knowing the truth itself. Like, okay, what is suffering? And notice it's important. The Buddha didn't say life is suffering. You see this in so many books, but that's not what he said. He just said, okay, there is suffering. Can anyone deny that? Okay. <laughs> if you said life is suffering, we'd have a huge discussion, you know. But it says, okay, life there is suffering in life, okay? And then you notice, okay, what then you at the second level of knowledge there would be knowing that you have to comprehend it. Third level of knowledge is knowing that you you have totally comprehended suffering. And the knowledge of total comprehension means okay, it doesn't touch you anymore. And then the same with each of the three other ones. You know the truth. What, what it is, what is the cause of suffering, what is the cessation of suffering, what is the path, then you know that, okay, the cause has to be abandoned, the cessation has to be 
comprehended and the path has to be developed. The final level is when you know that, okay, they have been, those tasks have been done. And the Buddha said it wasn't until he had completed the third level of knowledge for all four truths. That's when he was able to declare that he was fully awakened. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, I had a question um, about this uh, distinction um, you mentioned between uh, sort of rules for for monks and rules for lay people, particularly with respect to uh, sort of sensual pleasures. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I heard a talk once, a Dhamma talk that I believe was originally delivered to monks. It was an audio tape, and I'm not sure of the original context, but I believe it was with to monks, and it was basically advocating um, you know giving something up every day. Mm-hmm. Instead of make a profit every day, you should you should try to make a loss. Get, get <laughs> <laughs> and, um, <laughs> although it had a, somewhat of a Calvinistic ring, I, I know um, that in some of the books, I believe it was that John Lee's autobiography talks about you know taking a bit less food every day. And mm-hmm. John Munn came and here's some extra food from, you know, from monk to monk, or maybe it was yeah. another. It was a John Mahaboy, yeah. Okay, yeah. fair enough. Um, so uh, I'm wondering. The role of giving something up, um, it certainly has a role, it seems to me, to play in terms of discovering your hidden desires for something. When you give something up, you realize, ah, there's the craving. You know, below the surface, I wouldn't have recognized it otherwise had I had that chocolate. But when I say, I'm not going to eat that, um, you see it. Does it also have a role in terms of um, helping us get beyond those desires more directly? Oh, yeah. Because unless you, unless you can recognize the craving, you're not going to be able to get beyond it. Is it because we then work on the craving in meditation, or does it, is it also helpful sort of more directly than that? Well, it, it proves to you, yes, I can go without chocolate for a day. You know, you know. Um, and as, as for the difference between the monks and the lay people, you know, monks don't work to earn their living you know, in, in, the, in the actual sense of going out and having a job. They're totally dependent on the gifts of other people, so you have to learn how to be really frugal. And your needs, and um, and it's also no- good to note. Okay, yes, I can do without these things. Again, for the monks, um, I don't want to put ideas in Americans' heads, but Thai people have discovered many times that you know, they can control monks by refusing to give them food. And, uh, this happens, you know. And if, as a monk, you've learned that you can go without food for a couple of days, you can say, "I don't care." And you're not swayed by the fact that they're refusing to put food in your bowls. So it's also a good, you know, good learning and, and good lesson. And okay, what you can survive. I don't know how many. Well, I didn't. It was didn't have to be too many times. But there are a couple times when I first went to stay with my teacher, and he was going to say, "Okay, tonight we're going to sit and meditate all night, totally without warning." You know, in some places they have a nice schedule. They let you know ahead of time when you so you can get prepared. But with the John phone, there was no schedule. It was just said, "Okay, tonight we're going to sit up all night." And I complained, like a typical American. And I said, I can't do that. I've been working all day. And he said, well, is it going to kill you? Well, no. Okay, you can do it. You know? <laughs> it stretches your idea of what your, your capabilities are. So for lay people, that's a healthy practice. It's a healthy practice, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Yes. Qualities, mm. and I don't remember all of the qualities, but mm. you said something about 
skillful and unskillful use of these qualities. And I was particularly struck by your reference to skillful and unskillful use of equanimity. It just always has struck me that equanimity is, is in and of itself skillful. Uh, so is there a... There, yeah, yeah. Um, if you're equanimous about um, greed arising in your mind, say, hey, that doesn't matter. Um, that's an unskillful use of equanimity. Or you see somebody suffering that you could help and say, well, I'm just going to practice equanimity and not really give a damn. That's unskillful, too. Because equanimity is always taught in, in, in a complex of teachings. It's only one factor of many, and it has its time and place. For example, when they teach the four, what they call sublime abidings, you know, there's goodwill, compassion, appreciation, or sympathetic joy, and then equanimity. Um, and goodwill is sort of the basic motivation that you want everybody to be happy. You see people suffering, you feel compassion for them. You see people happy, you feel appreciation or sympathetic sympathy for their happiness. But there are times when, okay, you feel compassion for someone who's suffering, but you can't help them. Or you see your own suffering in cases where you can't make a difference. Okay, then you would develop equanimity. Or if you see somebody who's really happy and the person's a bastard, well, you have to be equanimous about that. <laughs> but it's not—it's not always a skillful thing. In fact, of of the seven um, factors of awakening, the Buddha said there's only one that's always skillful, and that's mindfulness. Again, if there's states of concentration you can develop in the mind, okay, you work to develop them. You're not simply equanimous about their coming and going. You really care about the fact that you want to maintain them. Or if you see a desire arising in your mind that's, that's causing a lot of problems, you're not equanimous about that fact. You want to do something about it. Yes. That's one of those things where you have to make the choice. It's a trade-off. The question is, sometimes you see that you're going to, by one action, you're going to harm somebody and you're going to help somebody else. You have to decide whether it's well. Try to think of something where you wouldn't cause anybody any harm. You know, try to expand in your concept of what the alternatives are. Mm -hmm. And then. But try to say, okay, is there the challenge that the Buddha always sets up for you in this issue of learning how to be skillful? Is can you learn to do something that it's the ideal thing to do in that situation? Causes the least amount of harm. And then just keep taking that as a challenge, because again, there's this is a path of learning. And sometimes you see, all you see are these two alternatives and say, well, this seems to be the better alternative, and then you follow it. Later on you might realize, okay, there are, there are other alternatives as well. And try to open your mind to those other possibilities. 
Anything else? Yes. I ask this question quite often, but um, I don't really approach this with any kind of belief, but rather with a practical thing. It's been working for me really nicely for the past few years. So we, it seems like everything you say is very intellectual. Mm-hmm. It's all this, this classification of systems. Mm-hmm. So this relates to that, and that relates to that. i tell you the truth, it doesn't sink in at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm having a hard time with that. Um, where, where should I go? Look at your actions. Just keep on. Mm-hmm. Is, it, is it a magical kind of thing that the more you observe uh, what's going on inside, that all these things that are unskillful are going to just drift away? No, you have to. You have to be determined that okay. I want to. I'm, my purpose in observing these things is to watch what I'm doing. Look at my intentions. This is where it's not just a matter of the intellect, but also the heart comes in there. Okay, what do I really want? Look at your intentions. And then just, okay, are these intentions that I are going to lead to future, you know, happiness in the present and happiness in the future, or are they going to lead to harm? And then you learn to say, okay, no to the ones that, le- that are going to lead to harm. And then as you act on the ones that seem to be skillful, again, look at the, re- look at the results. Is this really going where I want to go, or is it, are I causing some unexpected harm? If you see the unexpected harm, then you stop. And then you reflect back on your actions afterwards, because sometimes the results take time. And when you look at things in, in those terms, okay, then it becomes, you know. And, and the second thing is also learning how to live with your mistakes, in a sense, how to learn from them. Okay, I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to beat myself up in remorse, but I'm also not going to allow myself to repeat that mistake. That's how you how your actions become more and more skillful. So you don't need to need, know all the terms, but you do need to know, l- learn how to look at your intentions. So it's developing a kind of strength in your choice and your ability to choose. Right. Mm-hmm. And where does that strength come from? comes from developing... I mean, I really like yeah. chocolate, too. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Actually, chocolate is not all that bad. <laughs> um, but in, in more serious terms, it, it, having having that sense, one is the looking back at your actions, learning how to take joy in the times when you do the right thing. That gives you strength. And then as you're working on your meditation and a greater sense of stability and this ability to sort of be with your, your body comfortably in the present moment, that gives you strength as well. And the realization you're developing a happiness that nobody else can threaten, that's a huge source of, source of strength. Anything else? Yes. Aging? There's not much to be good to be said about aging. Um, <laughs> what, what's, what's the... Um, when you were talking earlier about the, um, sort of the indignities right. that
Well, again, it's it's an issue of developing good qualities in your mind so that when you do grow old, you don't feel like you're being deprived of something that's really essential. Yeah. You are. You're, you're being deprived of your youth, but you still have a certain amount of strength. You still have a certain amount of mental capabilities. But all of that goes. There's something in the mind that doesn't go. And that's what you're trying to find in the meditation, trying to develop. As we were talking earlier about cases of dementia, I mean, there's a certain you can develop certain strengths of mindfulness that enable you to sort out. Okay, you know, when the when the the brain starts sending you weird messages, you can begin to recognize them as strange messages, and you realize that you don't have to follow everything that comes up in the mind. These are skills that you can develop that will then see you through. But your body deteriorates, right? Mm-hmm. There's nothing good about that, but you can just develop a state of mind that doesn't care. How could you not care? Okay. Okay. If your most if your most valuable possession is, say, the clarity of your mind, um, your your ability to attain concentration, ideally, if you've had some taste of the deathless, that doesn't get touched by anything, and that you just keep going there. Because that the teacher I was talking about, John Sawat, when he said that his mind was giving him strange messages, he said, "But that thing I got from my meditation that hasn't gone away." You know, that's what you're working on. Because you know, he didn't he didn't like the fact that he couldn't walk anymore. But there was a part of his mind that wasn't touched by that. So that's where he basically where he dwelled. And I, you know, I felt very sorry for him. He'd had an automobile accident. He was being looked after by people whose motivation I didn't trust. And he knew he couldn't trust their motivation either. Um, but still, there was that part of his mind that just wasn't touched. And seeing that, you know, for me, was a big encouragement in the practice. So the, the, the traditional answer to that is, okay, you develop... It says you, you work for the attainment of what you haven't attained yet, you know, realization of what you haven't realized that, that yet, so that when aging, illness, and death come, you can still live in comfort. And the body may not live in comfort, but the mind has a sense of comfort. And that's why the Buddha focused on heedfulness. You, know? you realize that these things are these things are subject to danger, but you want to find something that's safe. That's what you work on. I think that's a good end to, note to end on. So, thank you for coming.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.